Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. What's up, internet people? Here we are. This is the eighth episode in our Ready for Anything series on finding a better way of working through pandemics, where we're going field by field across the OS canvas. On today's episode, we're going to talk about workflow, how we divide and do the work, the path and process of value creation, all the stuff about how work kind of meanders through the organization. But before we do that, perhaps we should meander through check-in round. We will. We shall. And we will. And it will intentionally not be related to viruses because yeah, you're over the check-in questions about viruses. I don't have anything else to say about it. So our question for today is, uh, what things do you buy that on reflection do not actually bring you that much satisfaction? Hmm. For me, it's probably shoes. Really? Like, That's think, not what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, I think I I don't do I don't do a lot of like flagrant spending on anything generally, but I often will buy a pair of shoes and be like this is the one. Like these uh-huh. are the ones that are going to make me look like a professional. <laughs> I'm going to wear these with a blazer. Like something's going to happen. And it never does. Like I just end up wearing the same all bird pull-on slippers every day I can get away with it. Yeah. I like my immediate question is a professional what? That's well, fair enough. <laughs> I don't know. A gentleman <laughs> scholar. Sure. A, a gentleman and a scholar. Uh, similarly, um, I still sometimes cave into my instinct to buy clothes for like fancier occasions. Yes. Yes. Uh, when my husband and I lived in New York, you know, his parents live in Manhattan and we did a fair amount of fancy things. And so I actually needed fancy clothes Galas really at a time that I couldn't afford fancy clothes. I needed them. And yes. then right yes. around the time that I could buy the things that I wanted, I no longer had anywhere to wear them. And so there's this weird <laughs> confluence where every once in a while I'll be like, those four inch, like beautiful shoes that I saw on like the Jimmy Choo website will arrive at my house. And I'm like, where, where am I going? In these, what are these like, for? To the farmer's yeah, market? It's more of a museum. Yeah. Yeah, it's a museum so then piece. I, you know, I return them or I just look at them wistfully. So, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I try not to do that anymore because it's deeply unsatisfying to have black tie clothing that you don't wear. I have long proposed to Britt, my wife, that we put a date we bought something on every item that comes in the house. And if we haven't touched it in a year after that, it goes away. And she has shot that down. Oh, that's a terrible <laughs> as- idea. <laughs> What if you want it later? What if like what if black tie becomes my new like farmers market, you know? If you haven't done it in a calendar year, I don't think it's I don't super know, likely man. to get pulled, dusted off. 
I'm not sure. You know, when I was a kid, my mom, who was like a chronic purger of things from our home, would like take out a box of the attic of my childhood, like drawings, and say, if you yes. can't name three things in this box, I'm throwing the entire thing away. That's dark. I know, man. I have some attachment like issues. So <laughs> like dating my possessions is not a thing that is happening in this house. Okay. All right. Well, it's not happening in mine either. So I don't. Excellent. I don't Solidarity, Brett. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, today's topic is not um, condoing your house. It's actually workflow. And so what I'd like to ask you is, is workflow just a fancy name for process? Or is there something else that we should talk about here? <laughs> well, I think um, I think there's a lot of overlap there for sure. Maybe I should go back and edit the book, make it more straightforward. Um, I think of workflow as the way work moves through a system. And so process can be part of that, but mm -hmm. process could also include other things that we want to check on or do or validate that has less to do with like how the work moves and more with how the work gets done. So, you know, a checklist about validating security or something like that might be a little bit more in the processy space. But yeah, I, th I think it's a fair question. There's a lot of overlap there. I also worry about does workflow overlap with structure? Because a lot of people mm -hmm. will say, well, if my role says that my responsibilities are X, Y, and Z, and their role says that their responsibilities are A, B, and C, isn't that the workflow? Because I'm the developer and they're the designer. So, you know, that's, that's how the work flows. That's how we get it done. And I would say that, that in some cases that uh, specifies how we divide the work, but not necessarily how it flows. Mm -hmm. And so my favorite example of this is you take a coffee shop, which... Um, well, you can't really go to a coffee shop right now, but if you have your, you know, support your local coffee shop with an online order. Um, but if you go to a coffee shop and you have a cashier and a barista, they both have really clear roles, right? The cashier takes orders and, and you know, exchanges cash. The, the barista makes coffee. But what that hasn't answered for us is which happens first. Mm -hmm. And so I've actually been to coffee shops where first they take your order and you pay, then you get a coffee. And I've been to coffee shops where first you order your coffee and you get it and then you pay. Yep. And so that's workflow to me and, and thinking through like, why should that be? How many cashiers to how many baristas? What happens when we get overloaded? What happens when there's a big rush at the door? Like, does the workflow change or adapt? So that is just at a definitional level. What I'm thinking about is what's the interrelationship between roles and their purpose and their responsibilities and the way the work actually gets done, which, you know, may include a process or may not, but it certainly needs to include some clarity about how that happens. Yeah. And when we do structure work, and if you all listen back to the structure episode, which was the first in this series, the number one principle that we are usually designing for is organizing around the work, structuring around yes. the work. Yes. Most of the nonsense and frustration and tension that we see uh, in organizations where the workflow thing is charged is that the workflow doesn't match the structure and the structure is not organized around the workflow. And so uh, there's just a lot of um, obstacles to getting things done. Yeah, totally. And I think that's super common, especially when we're organized functionally, where we say, all right, all the lawyers over there, all the marketers over there, all the designers over there. And then, well, that's not how we actually make anything. Mm -hmm. my, my running joke is, if you send everybody home but the legal department, nothing gets done, mm -hmm. right? Like they can't do anything by themselves. 
And, and what we generally find is that in more federated, more decentralized, more functionally integrated structures, you're able to get a lot more done because every unit can do their thing. They can right? The unit can, yeah, they can produce what they need to produce. And so um, as an example, at Favi, one of the you know auto parts manufacturers that we talk about in the book, they organize, they have one factory space, but they organize it into many factories around customers. And mm-hmm. so there's like a Volvo customer and a Jaguar customer and a whatever. And each one of those has its own salesperson, its own customer service person, its own machinists, its own, you know, logistics, like it's all there. And so if only the Volvo team comes in, they can make all the stuff Volvo needs for Volvo. Mm-hmm. And that is that, that's sort of a there's a resilience in that, essentially, because it doesn't there's no dependency on the rest of the system, with the exception of they're a little bit dependent on, on sort of following the rules of the road. Right. Like, mm-hmm. how do we share the assets? How do we share the facility? But they're not waiting on logistics to ship their stuff to a customer and waiting and tapping their watch and freaking out. Right. Which you see in tons of different kinds of organizations, even if there's not a physical product. It's like, who can launch the code? What are the security gates? Who is running the servers that it has to be deployed from? Is that in a different building or a different country or a different department? Like, these are the things that create tons and tons of friction. Especially now, because what you used to have is you used to have this informal network and this ability to get up and go to another desk and go to another department and go out to lunch and do all these other things to negotiate those handoffs and negotiate that collaboration. And now it's kind of like, it's just harder to have that happen serendipitously. It's harder to make that easy. Everybody's booked back to back to back to back to back in Zoom meetings. Like Mm -hmm. I have to imagine that people that are really um, you know, functionally organized right now are feeling the stress of how do I get this other function to do what I need them to do when I never get FaceTime? Right. Ever. For sure. Yeah. And now we're more reliant on things like roadmaps uh, that are often static and that are not evolving even <laughs> sure. as life is evolving. And yeah, huge, huge amounts of frustration and blockages. That's cool. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I was thinking, um, about this idea of like, how does, you know, pandemic, pandemonium, pandemonium, uh, ap- Corona apocalypse, um, mess with our workflow. And what occurred to me is it kind of messes with it in two ways, right? One is that we're now all effectively isolated units of one. And so anything that we're doing is going to be hap- happening in this collaborative software space, which we're not necessarily that great at. And so that that's one way that just like every handoff is a is a digital handoff, every interaction is a digital interaction. Um, any kind of like team identity or semblance of of unity is now a little bit messed with. Mm-hmm. And there's the really hilarious workflow uh, interruption of working from home with family. Mm-hmm. So like the very literal meaning of like I'm in the flow of work getting stuff done, and then I have to do an attention change and switch because my kid just came in and they have a problem with their homework Mm -hmm. and now I'm doing a completely different function. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so then I have to switch back. And so even like the simple act of individual workflow and, and being in a state of focus and, you know, working on in a rhythm mentally is also disrupted. So you have this like weird internal individual disruption and then this sort of like systemic workflow disruption. Yeah. And I would add to that, this moment is highlighting what we don't, do enough of in regular course of business around workflow, which is actually map value streams. 
So mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. one way to start to understand workflow in an organization is to actually understand how money flows through an organization and how we deliver product to customers. And yes. now in this yes. moment, you're seeing businesses all over the place being like, you know, we need to deliver different product or we need to deliver it faster or through a different platform or whatever. And what I hear bits and pieces of and am imagining writ large is because we've historically organized the work around the structures, it can be very difficult to figure out how we actually get stuff into the hands of the human person who is buying it from us. And like, how Mm -hmm. does the money get produced between us and the people who (laughs) give it to us? Yeah. And I like doing that uh, at all times, but especially now, but the idea of like tracing the line back and saying, all right, so we, you know, the ready ships a box of tension and practice cards to a customer. Um, let's start there and just work our way back. Like who ships it? How does it get shipped? How does it get packaged and assembled? Who oversees that? Who, you know, who does desi- who made the order? Who paid for that? Who designed it? What, you know, who developed it, et cetera. And, and, you know, there might, that might be one person throughout the whole process, or it might be 15, mm-hmm. but the, it starts to tell you a story about um, either over dependence on one individual to play too many roles in some cases, or uh, too many handoffs and mm-hmm. too many trade-offs and too many moments of like, you know, we're having to make, we're having to hope and pray that this works. And I love, 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 especially now to look for places where we can have one of those steps be automated and then two mm-hmm. of those steps be automated and say like, you know, we, nobody, nobody ships it because it's shipped by the fulfillment center that's automatically plugged into the Shopify store. Right. So that's done. And, you know, nobody had to pay for it because when they send the invoice, our bot automatically clicks the link and sends them back what they need, where they need to submit it to. And like doing things that basically make that more fluid so that then the number of teams who have to touch it is fewer. Right. Yeah. So that it's not finance and logistics and yeah, and, 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 but it's like it's development and design. That's the only groups that have to touch it. Yeah. And reducing dependencies is always good. It's always useful. Like unless, well, actually, no, I was going to say unless, but that's not even true. I was going to say, unless you reduce the dependency to the point that I have so much authority and autonomy that I'm making something stupid, but then no one will buy it. And then I'm going to be out of business anyway. So like the reduction of dependencies, exactly. I think is always a smart play. And right now, as we're working remotely and we're working in a way that's more essential, I also think from a mindset perspective, we need to be reducing dependence on us as individuals. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I was having a conversation yes. with one of our colleagues this morning um, who's on a different project than I am. And he was talking about, you know, sort of doing the same practices again and again and again. And I was like, bro, you cannot scale yourself to do that. You have got to think about this a different way. It's not like you mm-hmm. do it or no one mm-hmm. does it. There is there are like third, fourth, and fifth ways to think about how you do this right now. But right now in this moment where we're all isolated, we need to reduce dependency on any single point of failure as well. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think that's really smart. And it kind of connects to one of, I mean, there's a few ideas and practices that we talk about in this space. Usually one of them is limiting work in progress. So kind of Mm -hmm. coming from the lean, you know, manufacturing school and the, and the Kanban school of thought, but like, you know, don't have so many slots open on your dance card because eventually it becomes overwhelming and you can't fit anything through the pipe because you're juggling, you know, too many balls. And so the same thing there goes like, yeah, if you have, if you have really limited whip and you, and you, you know, narrow that down to a number that is maybe even smaller than what you can juggle, 
what it then forces you to do is like, well, if I'm going to get something else on the board, I got to get something off the board. Mm -hmm. And one way to get it off the board is to automate it. And another way to get it off the board is to give it to another group and let them deal with it. And then they're not dependent on me. And another way to get it off the board is just to stop doing it. <laughs> like yeah. just give it up. Um, but all those are good, right? All those are like very cleansing. Uh, they so are. I think just starting there will kind of force the right behavior at some level. Yeah. And this sort of leads into the sprint conversation, but someone said to me who is an agilist, I can't remember who it was, but he was explaining something about whip to me and he used the sort of phrasing of you can do nine things for nine months and have them all deliver, or you can do one thing each month for nine months and have them all deliver. Which do you think is easier? And I was like, that's really logical to me. Like all our time and And attention on a thing till it's done, then the next thing. Well, and the huge benefit from the second choice that you don't immediately think about is the first thing ships in 30 days. So we're going to have eight months of data on that by the time we finish the ninth thing. Yep. And the other scenario, we just get all the things at once and we have, and we've wasted nine months of, of data collection and then we pray. all those possibilities. Yeah. We yeah. pray that the market is yeah. still ready for the thing we thought was smart nine months ago and that it works yeah. really well. And I'm bad at this because I tell myself a lie about when things are needed. Mm. So I will, I'm like, I'm definitely someone that will talk myself into like, I have to do this and this and this because the time is now, like the market is now. And if I don't juggle, then I'll miss out on some magical opportunity or some mystical wave timing or moment. And like, you know, to be fair, occasionally that's true, but it's very rarely true on the time cycle of months. It's usually true on the time of years, right? On a rhythm of years. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the idea that like waiting three months to do my next project is that's all kind of just me being silly. It's funny, though, because it's like we all have our own uh, like carrots and sticks that are self applied, right? Like (laughs) you're like your paranoia is like the market is moving against me. And my paranoia is like, if I don't do this right now, am I not conscientious? And it's like, you know, we all bring our own nonsense to the party baggage, (laughs) but the reality for anyone, no matter what your rationalization is, is you can't do nine things at once and do them super well. So knock it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And it does connect to sprints because sprints are one of these other concepts we talk about in workflow a lot where we say break the work up and ship at the end of an interval and make that interval short, short enough that you have to like trim down the scope. So ship weekly or ship every two weeks, as they do in a lot of agile software practices somewhere in that neighborhood, as opposed to shipping once every nine months. And what I like about that is it kind of forces you to get something out there, which means you can move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I really like about Basecamp, for example, is they talk a lot about how they will do, I think they do eight week rhythms or something like that. And so you do an eight week ship. And then uh, they put whatever they just shipped down and they don't touch it again for the next eight weeks. Mm -hmm. So it automatically forces like a flip in work in progress where it's like, all right, we ship that stuff. Let's let that breathe. Let's find out what the story the data tells us and let's do another set of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when we get that stuff done, then if we want to go back to A, B and C, we can. But we've had like some space. And I think that's one of the things I really miss is sometimes I just get too close to the work. And so being able to go like eight weeks without touching, you know, the new course or the new software or the new whatever is like really healthy to just get that perspective. Yeah. I also think it just creates a level of specificity. I've like been in this, you know, specificity K-hole recently because I've realized how (laughs) much chaos and tension that is 
created at work is just because we are not specific in our right. We're just not way clear. of like talking about things and people refuse to write stuff down the way that they should. And so refuse. in that mercury, yeah, they refuse. Oh, they refuse. In that murkiness is like a lot of room for assumption and negotiation and nonsense. And the way that I yes. see that show up in um, sprints is I've been coaching a team that's relatively new to some ways of working. And they, like a lot of teams are prone to do in their doing column, rather than really articulating something that was like a bite-sized nugget, they want to articulate the overarching project and then put checklists inside of it. And <laughs> that creates a lot of frustration for them because week after week, it doesn't move. It just like sits in the doing column and they give some updates on what's happened, but they don't get the sense of momentum and progress of like sliding things to the right that other teams get yes. when you actually yes. chunk the work down into a sprint that is only going to take the amount of time or less time as the length of the agreed upon sprint window. I love that. Yeah, I've been going to the grocery store once a week uh, or once every 10 days or something as most of us have to like live live off whatever I can scrounge with my mask and my gloves. And one of the things I noticed is like I can fit eight bags in the car and I take the trip every eight to 10 days. Mm -hmm. And so that's like, that's my whip limit. That's your and that's limit. my sprint. Right. And my sprint is clear. So it's like, all right, we're, what are we going to learn in the next 10 days? Well, it turns out we don't eat that much deli meat. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. what have I learned? And so, and so when I go, it's like, I have to optimize for both those things. I really like that. Like it just gets you, if you can, one of the things that's interesting about it actually, that's making me a better grocery shopper is that it's consistent. Mm -hmm. And in my normal life, it's kind of like whenever the hell I feel like it, I just wander mm. down to the grocery store and pick up a little bit of this, maybe just dinner for tonight, maybe some fish. And so I never really got to know what was going on yeah. in the house. Yeah. And now it's like, all right, there are eight bags every eight to 10 days. Like I know what's up. And it's very weird. Well, I feel like a thing you're highlighting that is interesting to me is that you are perfectly illustrating why people inside of their jobs are hesitant to focus on the how. And it's like, mm. before this moment, grocery shopping was not one of your jobs. It was just a thing that like you did and Britt did <laughs> because happened, people have to eat. Did. And so yeah. it just happens and it happens on Tuesday or Saturday morning or one week it gets delivered and like, who knows? It just happens and nobody's ever starved. And so that was good enough. And that was good enough until now where you were like, that is not good enough anymore because we have all these constraints that we have to think about. Right. And like, if you talk to Ed, my husband, who actually like is professionally grocery shopping long before pandemonium like ed goes <laughs> to the grocery store the same day every week because it's when the shipment of this thing comes in the night and the best produce mm -hmm. and like you know he does not appreciate my intuitive shopping free jazz style because <laughs> there's a way to do it but the point of that is just it's the same way in companies we're in the work and we're doing the work and we're moving it forward and so we don't want to stop and say how is this workflow working for us can we really fit more than eight bags in this trunk? Or should we think about this a bit differently? And so I feel like, you know, what you're what you're illustrating is like what we all need to do about all of our jobs. Not 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 certainly not none of them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that it's it's the work. And and it what's interesting is that what to your point, when there are new constraints or new challenges, it turns like a nice to have into a must have. 
And right. so that's what we're sitting with is basically like you could probably get away with a lot of slop in your workflow in the past because there was a lot of buffer and a lot of room for negotiation and a lot of room for manipulation and all those other things. And now there kind of isn't. Right. And so it's time to, you know, get it right. Or if at a minimum, if you can't get it right, get it on a rhythm of iteration and sprinting and limitation where it's going to get better over time and you yeah. can sort of figure that out. And I have seen for what it's worth a huge range of approaches here where, you know, ranging from like, we're barely keeping the lights on to restaurants that have like the whole workflow streamlined with who's going to touch it, how many times and what, what place area does it get put on outside the door for hands, you know, for contact free pickup. And like, Mm -hmm. they've got the whole, and I'm just like, those people are playing the workflow game and everybody else is just like hoping that someone orders dinner tonight. Um, And I go back, I go back to the ones that feel like they have their, their, you know, S together. Yes. Oh, are we abbreviating cursing now? I like that. That's new. Well, remember, we're trying to be clean for the ready for anything series exclusively. I've just adapted. I don't need abbreviations. Oh, you don't even need it. All right. No, no, well, no. fine. I have a no. whole new, very hey. clean language for four more <laughs> episodes. Do, you know. <laughs> and then I'll be back. <laughs> and then it's going to be full <laughs> Scottish be sailor. Filthy <laughs> up in here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the handoffs. So we've talked about optimizing our own workflows and thinking about the how of that. And that limiting dependencies is generally pretty smart. But if we can't and we don't, why is that so messy? Like, let's just talk a little bit because I feel like a lot of places that the processes and flows in organizations break down is when it gets handed, particularly between teams that report to different leaders. It's often like at a more cellular level, it's okay. But then when it's like, when it's like Aaron's org versus Rodney's org, Mm -hmm. it's just like Mm -hmm. game over. Now it's like War of the Roses and we <laughs> cannot do it. So um, wh- why? Why that is? So I think the handoffs problem mostly derives from issues of prioritization and control. So what tends to happen is that we believe that our, you know, when we do have a whip limit, when we do have a work in progress limit, and we have a certain number of things we can do as a function, as a team, we kind of prize that as our property. Like Mm -hmm. our list is our list and we're not going to move around our list for anybody, just, you know, some geek off the street. Like we Mm want to be really intentional about that. And what tends to happen is that because we're isolated from each other and yet we're forced to be linked through value creation, what happens is things need to cross these bulkheads to get done, but we're not all on the same page about what matters. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is group A is like, oh, this is a really important project for the customer and we're going to do it. And it's our number one priority. And then group B is like, uh, that's number nine for us. And we're not about that life right now. Mm-hmm. And so then you have this problem of like, oh, the handoff is really what's broken. Well, I don't know that it is. I actually think the the dealing with prioritization and some of the stuff we talked about in strategy earlier is and resource allocation is actually more at fault. And so one of the things that I have recommended in the past that I think is helpful is, especially in a moment where maybe handoffs are critical or in a, a relationship between two parties where handoffs are really tenuous, is um, when we create new things that we know are going to have to cross party lines, we charter them together. Mm-hmm. So there's some measure of like, we're all bought in that these 10 things are going to happen this sprint or this quarter or this year or whatever. And we sort of all deal with the like horse trading that has to happen before we embark. And that can happen all at once, but it can also happen on the fly, right? Like Mm -hmm. we can just be like, hey, we see a project that's really important for the customer. We're going to get together with you now before we even start it 
and have a chartering conversation and see if we can get you on our page. And if we can't, and we have to like, even, you know, if we have a hierarchy, go up the hierarchy or whatever, we can do that. We can do whatever it takes. But what we're not going to do is start a project knowing that the handoff is critical and not knowing that you're on board mm-hmm. because that would be kind of playing the old game. Yeah. And I think one of the things that goes really off the rails is also that people in various silos just don't understand what the whole end-to-end process looks like, which isn't their fault. That's just like how it is. And so one of the things that I really like doing is starting, if you're going to get the cross-functional groups together who are going to be the end-to-end sort of, you know, soup to nuts value stream to the customer, have them really lay out what all of the parts of it are. And like, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a room where this was done, you know, with string and post-it notes or across a bunch of whiteboards or someone put it into some kind of like Visio and put it up. And people were just like, oh my God, I had no idea. I knew about like an eighth of that. And the rest of that was all just completely opaque to me. And they're like, it makes so much sense now why you're always yelling, you know, because like, I didn't realize that you had nine more months on the back end of testing before you could do (laughs) something with that. I thought it was just like a holdup after my part. The world is magic outside of your (laughs) discipline, right? Like you're just like, oh, stuff happens. I was in a meeting the other day with, uh, with a customer that works in the restaurant space before everything went down. And we were talking about how like somebody comes up with a menu item and then somebody else promotes that item. Mm -hmm. And then a certain amount of that item sells Mm -hmm. and the supply chain has to be able to deal with that. Yes. And the idea that like it could way over or undersell based on what those other two parties do. And none, neither of them really has to think about that. Right. Right. Like you're just like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll make an an artichoke salad in March and supply chain will figure it out. You know what I mean? And it's like, maybe they will, but maybe (laughs) artichokes don't grow then. Or maybe, you know, or maybe if you move it up on the menu three positions, you you blow out the supply by like 10x. So it is cool to really see and hear from the different disciplines that are involved. And while you're there, you can obviously try to remove some dependencies. And even if you can't, you can get that kind of empathy, that systemic empathy that I think leads to just better negotiation about those handoffs. Right. And then do the role work. That's like, okay, this is my bit and you're a bit and I decide this and you decide that and I'm accountable for this. And supply chain is such a great example. I worked with a restaurant company a couple of years ago and one of like the most mind blowing processes I ever saw was (laughs) when someone offered and then did create the map of new product development to in restaurant availability. And it was like, I mean, I don't know, it was 800 steps or something. It was insane. It was like 60 departments and like 800 steps. And like, it was (laughs) bananas. And it really, you know, getting sort of the, the restaurant and those people together, the restaurant who's like, why can't I have my cheesecake? Give it now, supply chain. Why are you such narcs? And then having supply chain be like, no, no, you guys, here's all the stuff we have to do so that like nobody dies of food poisoning. And like, you know, we're not illegally dealing with suppliers. It's just, it's amazing what some context around a workflow will do for that workflow. I love that. And I love the idea of just, uh, I don't know, recognizing each other like props and being excited about what we're capable of doing at scale. I mean, imagine just for a second, the act of getting lettuce to 3000 locations every day. Seems hard. Like I go to grocery shop, I get the eight bags in the eight days and I'm like already at my stress level. 
Right. Like that's I'm I'm at peak stress. <laughs> Nailed it. And and we're talking about like ready to go fresh organic salad to three thousand locations. Like that's just incredible. Yeah. And and should be recognized as such. So we've talked a lot about the way that workflow happens. Let's talk a little bit about when you make a new one or when you kill one. Because to me, there's so much focus on the optimization of workflow in organizations. And then there often that results in the question of like, who should be able to start a new process (laughs) that doesn't exist today? Uh, So how do you think about that? Well, it definitely falls under the category of things that can very easily become organizational debt because it's, you know, you can be super proud of your process for rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic and, and, you know, to what end, right? So I think, I think there has to be an intersection between strategy and purpose and, you know, workflow and resource allocation so that we see the connection between like, what are we doing and what is it adding up to? And in theory, um, you know, that connection can be made when we do things like start, stop, continue exercises, when we do things like, you know, looking for tensions and things that are holding us back, when we look for ways to limit whip, part of what we're looking for are just like things we're doing that aren't adding value. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's worth, it's worth asking ourselves on a regular basis. And it's also worth asking our customers and our users, like, is this adding value for you? And that could be an internal customer like HR saying, hey, we do this report every month. Is anybody reading it? Um, and it could be an external user being like, hey, we, you know, every, every month we have to do all this work to deliver this particular product or service. And, you know, what's the uptake and what's the value? So I think that is, is a big part of the elimination. And then who can make a new one? To me, this is just connected back to what you were talking about, about role clarity and decision rights. If you have a purpose and you have a thing you're trying to do and you have space in your whip limit and you want to do a thing, I think you can do a thing. And I think if if in doing that thing, you figure out that there's a certain workflow that's going to make it happen well mm-hmm. and, and start to adapt and, and expand that, that's great. Like that's just codifying the way the work gets done at some level. And so it doesn't, I don't think it has to be a grand, uh, you know, pronouncement of something that has to have like, a, you know, a PMO office and a Gantt chart and a, and a transcript. Like it can just be a really simple, I mean, the workflow for this podcast, for example, is fairly specific and mm-hmm. fairly well documented, but it's not, we never like sat down and we're like, let's do process engineering. Mm-hmm. It was like, let's make a podcast. And mm-hmm. along the way, we'll like document how we do it. And we'll, we built some templates and like, now it's three clicks to start an episode and, you know, and two more clicks to get it done on the other end, right? Mm-hmm. Thanks to Taylor and many other, you know, talented people. So like that, I think that is the part is, I think, just learn by doing on that front. Yeah. And I, I think the only thing I would add to that is if you're creating a new project, uh, get some user data on that too. I mean, there are things that we do all the time inside organizations where it's like, I think that they need this but I ask them if they would use it. And if they say, no, I don't waste my time. And (laughs) so, you know, there, there are grand innovations that obviously start because someone creating some kind of process or workflow or thing thinks that they know better than their user. And that's awesome. And for most of us in most organizations, we could include some diversity of thinking. So if we're like, there's a missing process here that would actually make life a lot easier, get a little bit of user feedback to find out if that's actually true or if you're off the reservation before you decide that you're going to uh, start a new experiment. There's such an 80-20 rule here too, which is like 
although our roles and jobs are very complex and complicated and there's lots of like things going on, for most of us, there are one or two types of work, one or two workflows, one or two processes that deliver the vast majority of our value. Mm. Right. So like, it's like at the ready, one of those is like, how do I, you know, sell a project? And another one might be like how I stand up and deliver a project. Like those are just routine workflows, um, how we hire people, right. How we train people. Like if you can get those few things, right. Mm -hmm. That's 80% of the value right there. And so right now when we're thinking about being lean and being smart and being nimble under the pressure of what's going on in the market, let's just like forget about the little stuff and just dig in like can i make our main process leaner smarter fewer dependencies better because you'll get a huge lift out of that Mm -hmm. and then the other stuff can come later but i think trying to like tackle it all at once can be a little bit overwhelming so i would just say like what's the number one process or workflow or type of work or thing that you deliver and just go there like go dig there yeah and just to tie a couple of pieces together that we've just been talking about If you have the ability to do it in chunks and like test (laughs) and learn your way into it, do that. And, you know, hiring is a really great example to use here. And because we've done a whole episode on the first half of our hiring process, it's easy to refer to. But what we never did was say like end to end, this is how it's going to work. End to end, I was like, this is my best guess for how it's going to work. And we're going to get... We're not going to focus at all on the top of the funnel because we already have peeps out there. We're going to focus a tremendous amount of effort on the first filter. And we're going to really test and get that first filter right. And and people, and you were probably one of these people, a lot of people when we're going through the whole process of creating the application and configuring the technology, we're like, how are we going to interview? And how are we going to pull the trigger? And how are we going to decide? What about about that? And I was like, I don't know. Shut up. I'm not there yet. We're going to get through this part. We're going to see who makes it, and then I'm going to figure the next piece out of this workflow. And that is what has happened. And part of the reason for that is because it would have been way too overwhelming to do it all at once and get it right. And part of the reason for that was because we learned stuff each time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's rainforest machete. Yes. You just got to like- Just keep (laughs) hacking. Just keep, (laughs) keep hacking. All right. With that in mind, I'm going to wrap things up here. Uh, It was- this was a fun one. I, it was I don't fun. Know. I I'm fun. sort Did of surprised. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Thanks for coming. <laughs> so throughout this arc, I have been out here shaking my tin can, asking for your reviews. <laughs> and this wonderful person named Siraj, who I'm friends with on LinkedIn, but don't know at all, wrote one and then he sent it to me and it warmed my freaking heart. So if you like Ready for Anything please leave us a review or forward the show to someone who is out there trying to figure out what to do in these weird and confusing times. Uh, And in the meantime, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Uh, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Change something.